Welcome to The Philosopher's Nest. I'm Kyle Van Ostrom. And I'm Lewis Williams. The Philosopher's Nest is a podcast that showcases the work, insights, and experiences of graduate students in philosophy. This podcast is generously supported by the American Philosophical Association, the Faculty of Philosophy at the University of Oxford, and Lineker College, Oxford. Today, we're going to be joined by Kerry Langsdale, a PhD student at the University of Nottingham. We'll be talking about Kerry's background transitioning from the private sector to a PhD in philosophy, her experiences as a self-funded PhD student, and her work, both public-facing and academic, on the philosophy of time. Kerry is always open to new collaborations and ideas, especially on her interdisciplinary project, The Art of Time. You can find more details on our website at www.kerrylangsdale.co.uk forward slash collaborations or email her at kerry.langsdale at nottingham.ac.uk. Kerry Langsdale, welcome to the Philosopher's Nest. Thank you. <laughs> Why don't you start by telling us about how you got into philosophy and what made you want to study at a university? Good question. So I'm still not quite sure, as strange as that sounds. So I came from a household where like, my parents had never been to university and they'd never had the opportunity to go to university. They, they kind of left school with very limited qualifications and straight into work. So I was raised with this ethic of like, you are going to university. <laughs> this is a no questions asked situation. You're going. And so I never really put much thought into what would happen I just took it for granted which is crazy because I understand that it's a massive privilege but I very much took for granted that that's what I was doing and so when I applied and they said what are you going to apply to do I went oh god I have to think about that (laughs) 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 but I had so I'd I'd, in school I'd had um, a religious studies teacher who was really nice and she'd said to me well you go and do an A-level there's like a religious studies and philosophy module that you could do and I just really enjoyed more the philosophy side. So we did the kind of normal things that you would do at that level, like Plato's Cave kind of <laughs> areas of philosophy. But I, I loved it. So it's like, you know what? I, I don't really have a plan, but I'm just going to, I've always been, a, I was always a pretty curious kid. And I was like, a philosophy would just kind of get to talk about everything. And that's what I'll study. I'll just study a bit of everything, but really in depth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when you finished your uh, undergrad, you went on to study a master's, but you then took a few years out um, before studying your PhD. So what were you getting up to during that period of time? So I left my master's without much of a plan. I applied for a job just in the private sector. So I was actually working in retail management for a little while. And that was interesting. I'd actually applied for a job before I handed in my master's dissertation. So I handed in my master's dissertation and then started my job the, the day after. Wow. Oh, wow. Uh, so I didn't really give myself much breathing space. I just <laughs> went straight in without thought. And I I enjoyed that job for a little while, but I think after after the first maybe three years, I sort of realized that I'm gonna have to think about ladder climbing and building a career. And I'm just not sure that I want to spend my life working to make somebody else rich that feels a bit like I I mean no hate to people who do it like everyone's got their own thing but it just didn't feel right to me and so I was thinking about what I could do and I was like well this philosophy thing was really interesting (laughs) I sort of felt like I enjoyed my master's but I didn't it didn't give me enough time and space to pursue the philosophy of time which is my area as deeply as I wanted to So I thought, well, look, I could do the financially responsible thing and keep my job and pay my bills, or 
I could just throw caution to the wind and just go and study a PhD because just for the just for the simple fact that I wanted to. It wasn't about getting a career. In, in fact, it was about specifically choosing not to have a career, right? <laughs> Which I think is not not always the reason that people get a PhD. But yeah, it was just about living my life for me, really, and doing something that I just felt like I wanted to do. I think that's probably one of the best reasons to do a PhD. I mean, you have <laughs> to fuel yourself with motivation to do this yeah. project, right? So I think, you know, a lot of people are like, well, what's your reason? Oh, I want to get a job in academia. We also like primarily is because it's a calling, right? Like it's something you want to do. Yeah. At least, at least so I think. Obviously, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm sort of curious, just like before we talk about uh, your research, you, mm -hmm. you went from the private sector to philosophy. Do you have any tips for people who, you know, come back from the private sector to philosophy? Like what, what helped <laughs> you make that transition if there was a big transition to make? Oh, so yeah, that, it was quite a transition. So I think that the first thing I'll say was a transition that was quite slow. So I decided about almost a year in advance of applying to a PhD program that this is the move that I was going to make. This wasn't, I mean, the decision was very quick, but carrying out that process was really slow because I wanted to make sure I was going into it. Obviously, your life changes really significantly. So there were a few things that were going to be very, very different for me, uh, especially, I mean, financially is a big one. Financially, things are going to change for you massively, especially for myself. So I'm uh, an unfunded PhD student. So I knew that things were going to be a lot more difficult in that area. I also knew that the way that I was going about working, I mean, private sector compared to academia is very, very different. The private sector, especially the one I was working in, was very much these quick type goals and you know you, you have to do this by that and this and you have this back to me by Friday and do this and you have to make this amount of money by the end of the month and you know it's all these loads and loads of little goals constantly and the PhD is just uh, could you please spend the next three to four years writing a book <laughs> and, and that is a massive that's a huge difference to get your head around so if you're going to make that move I would definitely put time into preparing it think about what you want to do um, start making changes in your life to make that transition easier. So uh, like a year ahead of applying, I, I moved house to be closer to the university that I knew I was going to be studying at. Uh, about six months before I changed my job, I got something part time and started slowly cutting down and then saving some cash to, to prepare for that. I started reading as much as I could because it had been four years when I left my MA. It was a, uh, well, that was too hard. I am never going back to university. That's not happening again. Nope, I'm I'm 100% never challenged me on it. I'm definitely, definitely done. Uh, and that didn't last too long. <laughs> and so what I'd done is I'd effectively deleted philosophy from my brain at that point. And when I knew I was going to go back, I was like, right, I need to start reading again. I should really kind of get up to date on what's been happening or at least refresh myself with some of the things that I've already done. So there are things that you can do to make that transition a little bit easier, but it it still was a big shock, I think, and it's always going to be. But I think if you know it's a big shock, it sort of lessens the blow a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it sounds like it's a decision that, um, that you put good thought into and didn't take lightly, particularly on the uh, funding side of things as well. And is there any advice that you would give to students who are facing that, that precise circumstance of having the option to or not to pursue an unfunded PhD? I think part of it depends on where you're coming from. So I came from a background where there wasn't an awful lot of money uh, with you know finances was always a struggle for us growing up 
and I've kind of carried that into my adult life as well. I think coming from that kind of background is definitely going to influence your decision, especially if you're you're unfunded because you don't have like a nice big savings pot to kind of keep you afloat. For me, it was quite scary the prospect because I I sort of worked my entire time. I've had a part-time job through the PhD. I know that some people, when I first started, some people told me like, oh, that's impossible. You can't work on a PhD. There's too like the PhD is just too much. And I don't want to lie to people and say it's been easy because it hasn't. It's been a real challenge. But you know, I'm in my thesis pending period now, right? I have gotten this far. It is doable. You're probably going to be tired a lot of the time. <laughs> and it just takes a lot of dedication. But you know, the, I think there are ups and downsides to it. You know, the downside is that financially things are going to be a bit more of a worry. Time is going to be more of a worry because you have to split the time between studying and writing and then going to your job, which is, you know, has its challenges. But look, on the other side of things, it's almost easier to manage my time because I know that I'm so busy. So I can block a time and be like, right, I know that I have to do some writing this morning. So I'm going to sit down and do some writing. The chance to procrastinate is lesser, which I know I'm a terrible procrastinator. I know a lot of PhDs are, but you kind of don't have that choice anymore. I've either got to do it right now or it's not getting done because I have to go to work this evening or whatever. And then also when you start looking at jobs, I know some PhDs, some of my, my fellow PhD researchers are looking at going into their thesis pending. Like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Like my, my funding is running out. I'm going to have to get a job. And they're in the circumstance where like, yeah, they might have had things a little bit easier in that specific regard for the past few years. But now they're in a situation where things are going to be rapidly changing for them. And I kind of feel I I feel bad for people in that situation because you haven't spent your PhD learning how to manage this. And this is going to pop up all of a sudden and you're going to have that that quick change. So, yes, it's hard, but it has its upsides and it, it is doable. It is doable. But you just have to be prepared to be a little bit tired and maybe be prepared to not do as much in other regards so for instance I don't do as many conferences I know a lot of other PhDs do I don't think you need to I don't feel like it's held me back I, I feel like there are some things I just haven't done because I haven't had the time but I don't think it's been a problem thank you for sharing that because I, I think it's important for people to know that it, that it is doable people shouldn't be discouraged yeah. right if uh, just just like in principle that you just need to reflect and you've clearly found uh, ways to manage that and like it's important for people to know what that's like so yeah thank you for that so where you're doing your PhD is the University of Nottingham and you're doing mm-hmm. your thesis research on the philosophy of time so what is the philosophy of time and what's the philosophical <laughs> interest in time <laughs> Okay, so the philosophy of time. So I approach uh, the philosophy of time from like metaphysics of time angle. So mostly it's a lot of sitting around thinking about which times exist. So you know, does the present exist? Well, I'm fairly sure it does. I like to think I'm in it. Does the past exist? Well, I can remember it. So it definitely did exist, but does it still exist? I mean, I don't know. Does the future exist? I think maybe some of us have stronger intuitions about the future than the past, because I definitely want to think that the future is open and that I can make my own decisions and things like that. So, yeah, a lot of it is balancing those intuitions and then trying to take those intuitions and form some sort of theory out of them. So, for example, my area is uh, presentism. So I look at the theory that uh, sort of broadly only the present moment exists. 
So the past did exist and the future will exist. But if we look at all the times that exist right now, we have this one. That's the area in which I'm working. So what kind of uh, considerations might motivate uh, such a view as presentism? I know that some people say that presentism is the, usually presentists will say that presentism is the intuitive view. I feel like maybe there's some bias there. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I kind of see where they're coming from, but obviously that's only because, again, I have that same intuition, right? And this is a problem. I think a lot more work needs to be done on determining just what people's intuitions are, because I feel like constantly falling back on the, oh, this is the intuitive version of time that that everyone subscribes to. I'm not sure we've done our homework on that, but I mean, definitely I feel like most of us think at the very least the present is special in some way. I might be wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's an intuition that most people have, and I think that possibly motivates it a little bit. There are also uh, other arguments against the idea that various forms of the passage of time when you have multiple different times are coherent so I won't reveal the entire argument because it is long and complicated and I will bore everyone Uh, (laughs) but if anyone is interested there is an interesting 1908 paper by uh, John McTaggart where he is also yeah famous paper or infamous paper should I say where he sort of said look I've proved that time doesn't exist and everyone all of his peers at the time went well, that's clearly wrong. <laughs> You've clearly gotten something wrong there. Right. And so people spent the next few decades after that paper trying to say, well, look, clearly McTaggart is wrong. Clearly, like, time has to pass because look, it does. It, we're in it. It's happening. And I think what's interesting is nobody ever actually proved him wrong with any real satisfaction. I think what happened is around the, around sort of the 50s, people gave up a little bit. There was a bit of a resurgence in the 60s and 70s. And now people have said, can we just kind of assume that he's wrong and move on, please? Because we can't (laughs) disprove it, but but we don't like it. So this is is where we're at. And presentism is a really, really nice answer because his whole point is, uh, you know, there's kind of an inconsistency. Past, present, the future are incompatible times. But it seems like every time is past, present, the future when you look at it from a different time, effectively. And for something to change, then it has to be either past or present or future. But it kind of seems like every time is all of them. So look, time just doesn't exist. And you're like, well, I follow your argument. It's really good. But that just, that just seems wrong. <laughs> it just seems wrong is not a very good philosophical argument. Probably what I use in my thesis more often than I would like. <laughs> I <laughs> just have to wrong. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's one that we're stuck on. So presentism just says look if the problem is the incompatibility with having past present and future then let's just have the present right let's just throw the rest out mm-hmm. job done <laughs> i mean it, it's so interesting right i mean uh, i guess like for people who make the like mctaggart argument right if they say something like well you know uh i'm going to explain to you over the next 45 minutes why time doesn't exist like you're like wait so <laughs> time's about to pass though right uh i don't know but i guess with respect to to, to presentism you know, I guess one of the things you might wonder is like, when you speak about things that happened in the past, it kind of feels like it's difficult to reconcile with the view, right? So if you know, you say Socrates was wise, I mean, this is a a true statement, right? Socrates existed. But if the only things that exist are the things in the present, then like, how do we make sense of, 
you know, that thing that was in the past and is a true statement. I guess, like, how, how do we think about things like that? Yeah, so there is a challenge to the present test, uh, which is how do we make true things about the past? Right? Right. Because the present test definitely wants to say that the past did exist <laughs> and that there are truths about the past, but that's really difficult to say when you don't have a truth maker. So as you'll be aware, like in philosophy, we love our truth makers. This is a thing we love. You know, what, what makes it true that Socrates was wise? Well, Socrates exists somewhere in the past and he was wise. And that makes that statement true, right? But when you don't have that past to point to, feels like maybe you, you, either you're stuck or you've got to do some kind of metaphysical gymnastics to get around that. And so because I like presentism so much, I just do the metaphysical gymnastics, right? <laughs> <laughs> so there are various ways of, of getting around this. One of my favorite ways of getting around this is called thisness presentism. So it sort of says, look, for, for everything that exists, when it comes into existence, this sort of thisness, this thing, this kind of metaphysical toy, if you like, comes into existence with it and then continues to exist once the thing itself no longer no longer exists, right? So when Socrates came into existence, some thisness, some thing that is, you know, kind of a thisness of Socrates also came into existence. You know, it, it exists in such a way that it only requires the initial existence of Socrates in order for the thisness of Socrates to exist. And then any kind of relation between them sort of falls apart and so Socrates can die and the thisness of Socrates still exists. And so we can sort of say, well, the thisness exists. So Socrates existed, right? That's, oh, yeah, that's <laughs> it's, interesting. <laughs> it's sort of cheating. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it, also, it kind of feels like it expands the, the present moment to like from, you know, I guess like from Socrates to now, right? Like how big is the present, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess that kind of goes somewhere to explaining how we can talk about things that happened in the past or that existed in the past, how presentism can account for that in the future as well. I'm also interested, though, in, in our relationship that we have with the past and with the future mm. and how presentism accounts for that. So to be specific, I guess we have this um, perception or, or this feeling of time passing, and we feel time passing in a way that's directed towards the future, such that things that mm. are in the future become slightly less future and that things in the past become further away. How does presentism account for this perception or, or feeling that we have of a, of a passage of time that takes us away from the past and towards the future? That's a good question. And I think this is one of my sticking points on presentism. And I definitely look at this a lot in my thesis. So my thesis is focused on not only presentism, but specifically making presentism a dynamic theory of time, right? A, a theory of time according to which, look, fundamentally time passes. Time is a thing that is that is dynamic in nature. And the presentism just says really that, look, the present is the only time that exists and what is present changes. And that's it, right? They're the two beliefs. And the thing that bothered me about presentism is, well, look, I can, I can buy that only the present exists, right? But what do you mean the present changes? That's a really big statement to make and to not give any mechanism whatsoever for that you just say oh it just changes just it just mm -hmm. does 
but like you know for philosophers for a group of people who overthink everything to the nth degree <laughs> that it feels like we're missing quite a big chunk of the story there right mm. so yeah one of the ways that, that presentism is often thought about is kind of one slice of time if you like so the way I think about it is it's kind of like a film so if you're sitting down and watching a movie it's not really a movie it's lots and lots of static images that are sort of played to you in a series that makes it look like a film and so if we imagine every one of those static images as being a time like a slice of time the one that you're currently looking at that's the present the, the part of the film that you've already watched that's the past and the stuff that you're going to watch that's the future if we look at them all together we say you know if we say they all exist that's the theory called eternalism past present future all exist and one of the ways that you can understand presentism is by just saying well look take the, the one that we're currently looking at cut off everything before it and everything after it and that's presentism right and so one of my criticisms of that way to understand presentism is that's not really presentism that's just one slice of eternalism and I really feel like the presentist wants to say something very, very different to what the eternalist is saying, rather than just, it's eternalism with less stuff, right? I don't think that's really what we want to get at. And so one of the things I've been looking at is, we'll just forget that there is a slice of time at all, right? Because partly it's too close to eternalism, and partly how do you account the change on that? I mean, you can say that there are truths about the past, and so the world has been different, but it still feels weird to say, well, look, we think that time passes. We think that time is fundamentally dynamic. So what we're going to do is we're going to start off with the static picture. And then my thesis kind of goes, whoa, 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 hang on a second. You've already lost me, right? You're gonna, you you want to say that time passes. You want to say that things are fundamentally dynamic. And you're starting off painting me a static picture. You've, you've lost me, right? <laughs> that, that feels really counterintuitive. And so one of the things that I want to do is, is paint a picture according to which look, we can be presentists, kind of, maybe non-standard presentists, but we can be presentists in a way that that passage of time is genuinely accounted for. Uh, so I subscribe to a version of presentism called existence presentism. It's the idea that that time slice doesn't really exist. We don't have a slice of time that is the present and everything that exists is located there. In fact, we don't actually have a slice at all. What we have is just things that exist mm. and those things that exist are present. So presence and existence are effectively just equated to one, one another, right? What it means to be present just is what it means to exist. So now you kind of get rid of this time slice or what do you have instead? Well, you just have stuff that exists, right? And so what, I've, what I'm trying to do <laughs> is create a version of presentism where you have stuff that exists, but that stuff that exists is not just static stuff, it's dynamic stuff, right? It's stuff that does things and has the power to produce change in the world. Therefore, I've kind of taken away that still image and replaced it with things that are happening, which is a really extremely simplified way of explaining my thesis. But that's how we, you know, that's how we move from that static image to like things are happening. And therefore, time is passing. <laughs> That's so interesting. So, so we've talked a little bit about presentism and sort of probing the view uh, from a philosophical standpoint. I'm sort of curious about the kind of practical upshots to presentism being the, mm -hmm. the correct account of the metaphysics of time or what time is. And I was wondering if you can tell us about this, this, this project that you have, this Art of Time project. 
tell us a little bit about uh, what that has to do with maybe the kind of practical uh, ramifications of your view. Yeah, okay. So the Art of Time started as a bit of an experiment with um, a friend of mine uh, who's an artist, and he was really, really interested in time. And it's something he'd looked at in his work before, and I'd spoken to him a little bit about how he looked at time and things like that. And um, he said, well, you know, I, I kind of take various intuitions I have, and I, you know, just look at communicating that. And I asked if he wanted to maybe collaborate like he is an artist and me as a philosopher and just work together and see if we could do something and we kind of played back and forth for that for a little while and it kind of worked really well and it got me thinking about kind of other interdisciplinary projects that I could do um, with the philosophy of time and one of the things that struck me when I was reading so much in my research was a lot of philosophers with with very, very conflicting views of the philosophy of time, will often motivate their views by saying, well, look, this view is just the intuitive view of time, right? This is, this is the folk concept. This is the way everybody thinks. And I was just like, look, you can't all be right, okay? Because you're all saying very different things. So you can't all be right. This is just the intuitive view that everybody thinks. So I was, you know, discussing this back and forth in, in our department, and I, I sort of raised the question one day, I was like, who decided that that was the intuitive view? Like, like which philosopher went out and asked the people what they think? And it turns out, no one, no one <laughs> had done that. There was a little bit of work um, by, I think, Christy Miller uh, in Australia, who had done a little bit about, she, she started to do some of the look into the folk intuition of time and determine what it is that the folk think intuitively about time but it's it still her work is while wonderful still very much uses the language of philosophy and I was slightly concerned about that as a broad approach because very few people have the language of philosophy if they haven't studied philosophy right and I think there's a reason that we get accused of kind of ivory tower study it does feel a little bit exclusionary sometimes so I thought well maybe you know I've been collaborating with an artist and it's going really well you know maybe there's something to this maybe I can actually explore what the folk intuition of time is and we can look at it kind of through creative mediums so that people can communicate these intuitions without having to have the language of philosophy and so that is when the project really kind of became official so I launched the Art of Time project and I started to do public engagement sessions and workshops with primarily artists but it's it's branched out massively since then and now it's just to the general public anyone who wants to come along can come along the response to it has been amazing I, initially I thought well I think the philosophy of time is fascinating but I did wonder how many other people thought that. Like initially, I was just like, everyone finds time amazing. Who wouldn't? Uh, but then I had a slight crisis of faith when I, I was like, I'm going to publish this and I'm going to put this out and I'm going to invite people to it. And then I thought, actually, what if everyone doesn't love talking about the philosophy <laughs> of time? As insane as that sounds, <laughs> because surely everyone's fascinated by this. But I thought, oh, God, what if they're not? And then I started doing workshops and they booked up fully every single time 
every time. Uh, so wow. I've got like the next the next three are already uh, oversubscribed, in fact. So oh, clearly congrats. people care about this, right? And so this is what I do. I run workshops and we it's like a half it's it's half a day, so it's quite long. And I introduce the general public to different ideas within the philosophy of time. And the whole idea is to kind of probe their intuitions on some of these things. So for example, we'll talk about, you know, does time really pass? Is there something special about the present? Do past objects exist? Do future, obje- future objects exist? Is the present moment somehow privileged? Things like that. And it's been going really, really well. I'm hoping that to turn it into a larger project. Um, but we'll see on that because <laughs> I understand it's unusual and somewhat experimental. But it's it's been going amazingly. Uh, the only downside, well, perhaps not downside, but the only occupational hazard, as it were, as you can probably tell from the way I've been answering your questions, is it means that the way that I talk about philosophy now is really informal <laughs> <laughs> because I speak to a general audience so often. I speak to people who've never approach philosophy before so often uh, and as I mentioned earlier I have so little time to do things like conferences so I'm very I, I don't really I'm not very well practiced on talking to philosophers about philosophy I'm used to talking to people who've never studied philosophy before about philosophy so I have this really informal relaxed way of speaking which is is difficult when I talk to philosophers because especially analytic philosophy like the precision that people expect is intense but obviously I can't go to the general public and do that because it's just, it's really intimidating and it's not helpful. And so I've relaxed into this, you know, yeah, let's talk about time. Let's it's basically just talk about Doctor Who for a couple of hours. It's going to be really fun. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have a laugh. Like we'll make some art. It's going to be great. <laughs> but I've very much relaxed into that in my way of speaking. Fortunately, my writing hasn't followed suit, <laughs> but... <laughs> interested listeners will see a link to the art of time project in the in the show notes well carrie thanks so much for joining us thank you very much (laughs) thanks for listening to this episode of the philosopher's nest you can find our website at www.philosophersnest.com and if you're a graduate philosophy student who might like to come on and join us for an episode feel free to reach out to us at the philosopher's nest at gmail.com